you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey man, can we meet? The seemingly random text is what brought us to a, co- a crowded coffee shop on a crisp fall night. We began with casual conversation and sweet pleasantries, and I knew that this wasn't the reason he asked me for coffee. Something was going on. I could see it in his eyes. He was saying things, but not the thing he wanted to say, or needed to say, rather. And after sitting in the painful uncertainty of my presence there, I decided to lend him a hand. So what's going on, man? And like a river, his confession began to flow. An internal dam had broken, and all of the emotion, anxiety, and pain came rushing out of his body with every word. I could see that it felt good to finally talk about what was going on, but with every sentence I could see shame washing all over his body. He did something he swore he would never do, something he didn't even think himself capable of. He wounded the person he loved the most, and his world was imploding. When the rushing water of words slowed to a small trickle, in in disbelief, he asked me, how did I get here? Now to be clear, he wasn't avoiding responsibility for his actions. In the ocean of his words, he clarified again and again his agency and responsibility at every turn along the way. The words were more a cry for clarity. How did I get here? In other words, what happened that caused me to change who I thought I was? We sat there for a couple of hours. He talked and I listened. I asked questions and he answered those the best that he could. And as we journeyed together in conversation, we made our way to the very beginning. Not just to the affair or to the difficulty in his marriage, we got to the very beginning, where it all began with a lie. A lie he believed about himself, and that lie became a lie lived, and the lie he lived became his life in ruins. And the question that he asked me still haunts me to this day, how did I get here? Dallas Willard says, we live at the mercy of our ideas. Some ideas carry the kind of power that causes people to believe the royal family are actually lizard people and the earth is flat. Some ideas carry the kind of power to cause people to fly planes into buildings or shoot up schools and churches. And some ideas carry the kind of power that causes a man to destroy the thing he loves the most. Ideas are powerful. Ideas that are rooted in lies bring about futures of great loss, destruction, and pain. But it begs the question, 
where do these lies come from? There is a being behind the whisper of lies, and he longs to bring about destruction. At least according to the biblical authors, there is someone behind these lies. These lies are in fact animated by evil itself. Today, we continue in our series, East of Eden, Sin, Suffering, and the Snake Crusher. In our Lent series, we're going to be journeying through a portion of the Genesis narrative. And as we peer into the story in Genesis, we get a window into how we got here today. As we move through the story, we come to see it's not just a story, but it is in fact our story. And this story lives itself in us, every last one of us. And last week, we opened our series with a tale of two trees. We opened uh, to the reality of a garden called Eden, a word meaning delight. And we quickly see in the story that this is no normal garden where you cultivate your ingredients for salsa. This is something more. This is the place where heaven and earth overlap. This place is a place teeming with life and potential. And in the garden God plants, he places humans, Adam and Eve, as priests to worship, to serve, and to protect this garden. The goal is that they would cultivate shalom, which is a Hebrew word for peace. But it means more than absence of conflict. It means presence of wholeness. And so the biblical idea is that Adam and Eve would cultivate creation to live within its designed rhythms. However, in the middle of this garden are two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Or if you remember from last week, Tovin Ra. Now, these trees become a place of testing for Adam and Eve. Will they trust God and rely on him to be the one who teaches them wisdom, that they would know Tov and Ra from God, or would they choose to take for themselves, defining Tov and Ra on their own terms and choosing to take wisdom according to themselves? It is from this moment that we pick up the story. Chapter 3 opens with this line. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. Chapter 3 introduces us to a character. It's important to note that this character is not new to the story, but rather has been moving around in the background and now comes to be front and center of the narrative. Now we aren't told a lot about this character yet, but with just a few strokes of the pen, we are invited to see that this is more than just your average snake. There's more here than what meets the eye. Now, as a reminder, the Bible is ancient Jewish meditation literature, meaning that you are to spend your entire life reading and rereading and rereading this story. And with every pass through the story, you discover new things. What may not be apparent the first time through suddenly becomes clear as you spend time in the story. And we see that this snake becomes foundational for the rest of the story. The later biblical authors will map onto this being the personification of evil. The snake will become known later in the story by multiple titles. The Satan, the devil, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the god of this age, the great dragon, etc., etc. Now, notice that in every single one of the titles that I explained, it's not a name, it's a title. The biblical authors never give this individual, this being, a name. They only refer to it by these titles. And the two most common are the devil and the Satan. The devil is the word diabolos in Greek, and it means accuser or slanderer. And the Satan in Hebrew is chasatan, and it means the adversary. So Satan is not his first name, it is his title. And to be technical, it's the Satan. And so if I, if I say that in a sermon, don't be like, oh, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about, right? It's actually his title. 
Now, first thing that we discover is that this being is created. Notice the line, of all the wild animals the Lord God has made. Whatever this snake becomes, we know that its beginning was created. Meaning, and this is really important, this being is not equal with God. This, this is what dualism teaches, that good and evil coexist at the same time and have the same origin, etc. Not in the biblical narrative. God creates this being. This being is subject under Yahweh, creator God. So this being is first created. Next, we're supposed to see that this creature is a chaos creature. And here's what I mean. In the ancient world, we were, if we were to see a serpent enter into the story, we would know to pay attention very closely. In the ancient Near East, snakes were powerful symbols known as chaos creatures, a creature that doesn't necessarily belong in God's divinely ordered world. Think about it. A snake really isn't a land or a water creature. It's kind of out of place in both areas, right? It has no legs, meaning it's really weird on land to see these things slither around. And it has no fins in the water, which is, if you've ever seen a snake swim, there's nothing more uncomfortable than watching that kind of video. YouTube it later. It's creepy looking. And if I could just be honest, snakes are gross in general. Like, if you're one of the people who dig on snakes, there's a little bit of judgment coming from you, okay? Coming from me. Gross. But the snake is this creature that just doesn't really belong or fit anywhere. And the ancients had this perspective as well. Later in Leviticus, we find that this animal was listed among the list of impure animals. And in the ancient world, snakes were associated with death because they were poisonous. They were also associated with the underworld and death because they came out of the ground. You've ever seen a snake burrow out of its hole? The ancients thought of that as them dwelling in the underground where death is. Now, what's interesting to note is there's a double meaning in the word snake. Snake is the word nachash. Can you say that? Nachash. The word means snake, but it also has a double meaning. It's the same word used to describe sorcery or divination. And so if you were to read this story as an ancient person, all of this background would be in your mind as you read the, snor the story. And snakes would play a more interesting role in the story as you read it along. Now, can we address the snake in the room? A talking snake. A little weird if we're honest. Some of you have been around the Bible for a long time, and so you just are cool with that. Like, yeah, whatever, dude, talking snake, splitting seas, I'm down. For people who aren't familiar with the way of Jesus, they say, I'm going to start reading this from beginning to end, right? God created the world, cool, humans, males, females, yep, for it, land, sea, trees, I'm down, talking snake, you lost me, right? What on earth is happening here? Now, this is one of the more challenging aspects of the narrative is that there's a snake who talks. Now, why didn't this surprise Adam and Eve or terrify them? Some people think, Ugh, the ancients, right, with chronological snobbery, they just didn't know that snakes didn't talk, like, look at them foolish with their gods and their vision. Right, right. Wrong. Ancients did not believe that snakes talked, just as you didn't, right? You don't think that. You don't go to the pet store thinking that it's going to start talking back to you from behind the glass. They would just be just as terrified as you were, and they would be just as confused to see a talking snake in the beginning of the narrative. This is to tell you this is more than a snake. This is more than just a creature in the field. Now, remember, Eden is the place where heaven and earth overlap. It is a thin space, a holy space, and context is everything. They're in this space where heavenly creatures and earthly creatures coexist together. So when the snake appears talking, we already have a category for a creature like this. Now, there are other times in the biblical narrative uh, where Israel's prophets get visions of this space where heaven and earth overlap, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And when they get these visions, if you've read any of this literature, they're pretty strange visions, including some pretty weird-looking creatures if you tried to draw them. And so we have paradigms for heavenly creatures who are more than the, more than the creatures that they're described as, but uh, also are a part of God's space. Now, later in the story, we are told that creatures are, that are called cherubim guard the garden at its entrance uh, with a flaming sword. And they, they serve as protectors of this holy space. And they stand guard over, um, over Eden where Ad when Adam and Eve are exiled. Now, 
a really important vision to this story is found in Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees a vision of God's heavenly throne room, God's space. And when he sees it, he sees heavenly creatures surrounding his throne. Watch what he says here in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings covering their face, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of its glory. Strange vision, right? The word I want to call your attention to is a word left untranslated in all of most, almost all English translations, and it's the phrase seraphim. Almost all English translations don't translate this Hebrew word into English. They leave it in its Hebrew form. The word seraphim means venomous snake. This is the same word used in the famous story in Numbers where the venomous snakes are biting Israel and they have to raise the bronze serpent up, right, in order to be delivered. Seraphim, snake. It's the word meaning snake. And so we're to see that this spiritual being, whatever it was, was a part of God's throne room at one point. Was a part of, some people go as far as to say, was a part of leading worship in God's throne room because the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are caught singing, declaring God's worth and praise. We're to see the second this creature pops up, there's more than the weeds to die here. Now, I know what you're thinking. I have the same question. Why would he put this snake in the garden? Am I right? Why is he there? Like, we know this dude's sketchy. Why is he there? Why did you allow him in? Who left the back door open to let the creepy snake in, right? That's what you're thinking. Now, my thoughts on this are that this creature was not yet who we know him to be at this moment. And this is made clear in how this creature is described. I want you to notice the word crafty. Most of your translations have that. Some of your translations will have cunning or subtle here. All these are good translations. However, I think in English, crafty carries with it a connotation of evil at worst or mischievous at best, right? If someone were to say, oh, Andrew, he's really crafty, you wouldn't feel good about that, right? You would think like people think I'm a swindler or something of that nature. And so I can see why translators made that decision, but that's not exactly what the word means. The word in Hebrew is arum. Can you say that? Arum. Yes. It means, more technically, shrewd. Uh, a better translation, and the NLT actually, I think, gets this right because they translate it shrewd. Now, shrewd is a neutral word. Arum is a neutral word. This word is used to describe somebody wise in the Proverbs. So somebody who is righteous and wise, they're called arum. It's also used to describe people with questionable character, like in the Psalms or in Job. Somebody who is a room is using their wisdom against others. Scholar Zani Zevet says this, The arum is one who conceal what they feel and know, in Proverbs 12, 16, and 23. They esteem knowledge and plan how to use it in, in achieving their objectives. They do not believe everything they hear, and they know how to avoid trouble and punishment. In some, they are shrewd and calculating, willing to bend and torture the limits of acceptable behavior, but not to cross the line into illegalities. They may be unpleasant and purposely misleading in speech, but they are not out-and-out -out liars. They know how to read people and situations and turn their readings to advantage. A keen wit and rapier tongue are their tools. I want you to think about Jesus' statements to his disciples when he tells them to be wise as serpents, snakes, arum, this kind of wisdom. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind, I, arum is a fork in the road. You are given wisdom, tact, thoughtfulness, being cunning, being observant. The question is, what will you do with it? You can be like the people in Proverbs who are righteous with it and bring forth tov. Or you could be like the serpent ultimately is and use wisdom to take advantage of others, to deceive others for your own personal gain and bring about raw. 
It's morally neutral at this point. And so, with this understanding, this is really important, God doesn't create an evil being. He creates a wise one who uses their wisdom for evil. Now, this is what we know about the snake thus far in this narrative. Later reading will give us more insight into this creature. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, then when on earth did this guy rebel? Right? If here in the garden he's like morally neutral, when on earth did he become evil? My answer to you would be right before our very eyes. That as we are seeing humans rebel, we are seeing the spiritual beings rebel too. Namely, the serpent. Don't believe me. Seth Postel has something to say about it. He says this. The serpent's decision to use its prudence for evil intentions, however, resulted in a fall from divine favor to eternal humiliation. And this offers a solution to the age-old question of the serpent and Satan's fall. When did the Satan rebel and fall? It fell in Genesis 3. Thus, Genesis 3 depicts the fall of Adam and Eve and the serpent. I realize this brings up a ton of questions, and I'm so down to talk about those. But for the sake of the Sunday gathering, we're not going to hash out all those details. But as a quick little caveat, if you'll let me, this helps make sense of more of the Genesis narrative, specifically like Genesis 6 with the Nephilim, sons of God, women. You see like a fall happening there. Not going to get into those details now. So down to talk about it after. But it makes sense of those. Now, if you're like, I don't believe you. This is whack. That's not what you know. Whatever. Fine. But then you have to make sense of, a, uh, of an evil creature in the garden. You have to answer that question, right? This is, I think, a helpful and what, one I think truly is what the text is teaching us about the, the fall of the Satan. Now, whatever you believe here, we can still be friends, yeah? 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 Uh, some of you are all, no, dude, you're out, you're done. Okay. So all this to say, regardless of where you stand on that, here's what you're supposed to see. This is no ordinary snake. There's something else happening here. Now, we move on in the story. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? As the snake opens its mouth, its intention becomes clear. Its intention is deception. Now, it's important to note here, and that we see here, is what we see in the rest of the narrative of Scripture. The serpent's tactic is not through brazen trickery, but subtle deception. As I talked about a bit last week, deception is kind of a tricky thing by nature, yeah? No one who is deceived knows they are deceived or else they wouldn't be deceived, right? That's the nature of deception. One who is deceived is following their own internal compass in the wrong direction without knowing it. The mental picture that comes to mind is uh, the this, this stubborn archetypal man who doesn't need directions getting anywhere and has been actually driving in the wrong direction for 45 minutes. The plea of his wife, please, can we GPS? No, 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 I know I'm going. This looks familiar, that kind of a thing. It's like going in the wrong direction. Now, that's because of pride. There's multiple reasons for deception. But, but that mental image of going in the wrong direction, convinced that you are right, that's deception. Dallas Willard has this to say about a deceived life. Deceived life. He says this. Such a life, I love this picture, is controlled by inertia, habit, bent of character, stuff we really don't pay much attention to, if at all, if any at all. And in some cases, stuff we didn't, don't even recognize or, or admit is a part of us. The self that does deceiving in self-deception is the internal bulk of habit and bent character embedded in our body and its social relations, ready to go without thinking or choice. Deception feels like inertia. You're just going in a direction, not knowing you're going in the wrong direction. It's controlled by a different kind of force. And unless acted upon, your life is moving in a certain direction. And if that direction is not the way of Jesus, then according to the biblical authors, it leads to destruction. Now, the battleground then for every person's life is not fought on land or sea, but in the mind. The weapons of warfare are not swords and shields, but are ideas and lies. 
Winston, Winston Churchill said this, the empires of the future are the empires of the mind. Day in and day out, battles are being fought, not with military power and prowess, but with ideas. And we see this in our modern day. Modern military theorists call the moment that we live in dirty warfare or asymmetrical warfare. What this means is that in, in times past, war was fought symmetrically, meaning you bring your army, we'll bring ours, we'll meet at the, you know, we'll, we'll meet at the dividing line, and we'll see who wins. That's not how warfare works anymore in the information age. Those days are rather over, still present in some ways, but most warfare takes place uh, as dirty war or asymmetrical warfare, meaning it's a war of information. It's a war between truth and lies. One cultural commentator says this, the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking and to annihilate truth. The goal isn't just to get that information out. It is to wear you down and trample under its feet truth. We see this every single day. Every day, you're surrounded by propaganda, and it's hard to discern what's true from what is fiction. It's not by happenstance. What we are seeing all around us is, the exact, is exactly what the enemy has been doing from the beginning. He's been utilizing ideas to bring about destruction. Now, here's the kicker. We cannot win a war we do not know we're in. In the West, we live disenchanted. And what I mean by that is we don't have paradigms or frameworks for things that exist outside our modern materialistic worldview, right? When people talk about miracles, they say there's always a scientific explanation. When people talk about encountering God, they chalk it up to emotional manipulation. When people talk about evil, they point to a lack of education, the economic gap between the rich and the poor, and often the hangover of toxic religion. But all of these are poor attempts to make sense of evil in our world. But this is what the modern framework holds. Now, any time living on planet Earth will tell you, things happen outside of this framework. And, and, and you quickly realize that there's always more than what meets the eye. The world is full of wonder, and things often feel like they have forces behind them, both good and bad. And so here's the question. What if we're deceived? What if we are blind to what is actually reality? What if the biblical authors and Jesus himself knew the true nature of reality better than we do? And what if the price we pay for our disenchantment is never actually seeing reality as it is? What if this very lie finds its origin in the liar himself? I want to call to your attention what Jesus says about this serpent later. He says this, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says of this serpent, there is no truth in him, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. Later in John's gospel, he says that the serpent's motivation, the serpent's endgame, is threefold, still, kill, and destroy. How he does this is through lies. Notice his conversation with Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to notice that he does not come with sword and shield. He comes at Eve with an idea. Dallas Willard says this, ideas and images are, accordingly, the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. Thus, when he undertook to draw Eve away, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own, on her own to secure her own well-being. Notice, 
The snake does not come out and say, hey, Eve, you know it would be a super dope idea? You should eat that fruit God told you not to eat, right? doesn't come that way. That could have easily have been dismissed. He comes with an idea, and the idea is subtle. And he, do, he brings forth his idea in the framing of a question. Now, it's interesting to note, it seems that the serpent hears God's command, but chooses to frame it to cast aspersions on God's character and intentions. I, I put up on the screen uh, before you guys now both God's command and what the serpent has to say. So the serpent says, uh, so, God, uh, so the serpent says, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. This was God's command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it from it, you will certainly die. Now notice, the snake admits that they are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but one. He omits the name of the tree that they're not allowed to eat from. He omits the consequence for their action that they would certainly die. He frames the question as limiting. It's almost laughable that they weren't able to eat any tree from the garden. Of course not. All of these were available for them. But the subtle framing focuses their attention on what God said not to do, not what God said they could do. And it begins to tell the story that God's withholding. Also note that he draws her attention to the one tree she can't eat from, not all the trees that are included in the garden. Also, and including the tree of life, which they had access to. Because there's two trees in the middle of the garden. He draws his attention away from the tree of life and to the knowledge, to the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, or Tobin Ra. Again, Zion Ezebit says this, his words, being the serpents, trail off into silence, a lingering, incomplete thought. All that emerges clearly from his non-sentence is the phrase, every tree of the garden, by placing an incomplete utterance in the serpent's mouth, the author left readers, or within the narrative, the woman to complete the thought. Now, he comes with an idea, but his idea has a purpose, and he's here to deceive. One scholar commentates and says this, the serpent's obvious inaccuracy in his rendition of God's prohibition sounds like cunning or lack of subtlety. In fact, it is a well-known trick of the con man to appear stupid to put others in a position of sham superiority. Any hustler knows that she better start by losing some games and give the impression uh, give the impression to the other that they will be easy winners. The snake comes like he doesn't know anything. Did, is that really what God said? All with an agenda in mind. He's making her feel as if she's in control, but he's actually in control of the conversation. Now I want to call your attention to the woman's response. She says this, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat, from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. Notice, she misquotes the command. In the clear reframing done by the serpent, she's already beginning to see the command as restrictive. Notice, she adds more restrictions on it. God never said she couldn't touch it. Now, is that kind of implied? Yeah, right? It's like, it's like telling your kid, you can't eat gummy snacks, and they're just touching them. It's like, you know, you're, you're still wrong, right? But it's not what's being said. And it actually shows that the, women, the woman has actually taken a step towards the deceiver because she's adding more restrictions on it than God already had said. Also, notice that she doesn't say that she could eat from any of the trees of the garden. She just limits it so we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Not all of these trees or all of these trees or, dude, it's so awesome, we get to eat from the tree of life. I'm not worried about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? She doesn't frame any of that. She's already moving in the direction of the serpent. Now, um... What we see happening here is the lie of scarcity running its course, meaning her eyes cannot see what she already has. They can only see that what she doesn't have access to. This is how sin works. You don't see all of the freedom you have. You see the thing you feel God is holding out on you with. Zani Zebi says this, Eve unwittingly opens her mouth to speak and swallows the serpent's baited hook. Now, his goal is to create space between humans and God. An interesting tactic, tas tactic that he used here is he depersonalizes God's name. The rest of the Genesis narrative uses the phrase, the Lord God, when speaking about Yahweh creator. When the serpent comes, he doesn't use God's covenant name. He uses a generic term for God, Elohim, just meaning God. 
So what he's already doing is he's making God feel unpersonal. He's objectifying God. He's simply just God out there, not the personal God whom she knows, whom she walks with. Um, Walter Brueggemann points this out. He says, God is treated as a third person. God is not a party to the discussion, but is, in, is the involved object of the discussion. This is not speech to God or with God, but about God. God has been objectified. The serpent is the first person in the Bible to seem, to seem knowing and critical about God and to practice theology and the place of obedience. To do the business of talking about God than rather than talking with God. Now the serpent responds to the woman. He says this, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent begins to cast doubts on what God has commanded Adam and Eve. Now, I'm going to geek out a little bit here for a few minutes. Are you with me? Okay, let's do it. So, there's a lot happening in this phrase in Hebrew, and biblical scholars debate back and forth because the grammar here is super weird. I'm not going to get into the technical grammar because even like saying it out loud, I was like not exactly sure what was happening. But here are the possible renderings of this because of the weird grammar. So first is just taking it as outright reading. Certainly you will not die. Just outright contradicting God's command. That's one idea. Others take the stance that he's questioning the certainty and immediacy of their death. Because of the grammar, it might read something like this. It's not certain that you will die. So he's just like, maybe, maybe not. So there's like outright, you're not going to die. There's, you don't know if you're going to die, right? And then another way is to take uh, a different take is that the servant is quoting God's words from 2.17. You will certainly die and prefacing it with not. And then going on to give a different motivation. So we might render the words, not certainly die, but God knows that you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, wherever you land, this phrase is ambiguous on, person, on purpose. And uh, with the ambiguity of the serpent's words, um, what is abundantly true is that the serpent is trying to cast doubts on the very words that God has said and assign motivation that God is actually holding out on them. Notice what he says. God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, you will know uh, tov and ra. Victor Hamilton says, implicit here is the suggestion that the serpent knows God better than the woman does. For he can penetrate his mind and claim to know what God knows. As I'm preaching now, I just, uh, there's a, I just get a sense that the voice that somebody's been hearing in their mind in the last couple of weeks sounds like this. It sounds like God, it's assigning motivation to God. God knows you're a mess up, you screwed up. God knows what you've done, God knows this, and it leads to the voice of condemnation. And I just feel a strong impression to say right now, that voice is from the pit of hell. And that is not your father's voice. And so if this is what the, the rhetoric has been sounding like in your mind, know that it's not from the Lord your God. He then tells them that they will become like Elohim. They will become like God, knowing good and evil. And Crispin Fetcher Lewis, who is a commentator, knocks us out of this park. So I'm just going to read what he has to say because it's way better than what I had to say. He says this. In Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve's sin is a departure from a relationship of love and trust of their creator. The serpent offers them fake deification, a tragic imitation of the divine nature. Notice this line, that they already have. They are already God's divine image, carrying the divine breath with divine privileges as the ability to name parts of creation as God himself did on days 1 and 3, and wisdom. God has already showed them the difference between Tov and Ra and would continue to guide them in that discernment. They are image idols of the creator Yahweh God, and the serpent offers them a shot at becoming only like Elohim, God's. In apparent ignorance or forgetfulness or of or in rebellion against their true identity, they fall prey to the serpent's insinuations that their creator has deceived them. Now, I want you to notice how a lie works. The serpent doesn't come with a bold-faced, outright lie that's clear to discern. It's this weird mixture of truth and lies, right? 
it would be easy for us to dismiss the lies of the enemy if there wasn't some truth riddled in with them, right? Like if you heard a Diet Coke cancels out a slice of pizza, you would know that's nonsense, right? Now that's my, what you tell yourself, right, to get through it, right? But it's not exactly the case. It would be easy to do that. It'd be easy to dismiss that kind of lie. But how deception works is it's truth mixed in with these lies, and so it makes it hard to discern what's actually true in the mixture. To be able to use the biblical language, discern truth from unreality or lies. It becomes very convoluted. It becomes very chaotic. John Goldingday says this, The snake deceives the woman by implicitly questioning God's motive for his prohibition and by contracting what he had said, uh, or contradicting what he had said about the further consequences of eating from the tree. But the snake leaves the woman to work out what to do in response to its contradiction and its slur. And therein lies its shrewdness. The snake's speech is an invitation into absurdity. It is the original piece of bad theology, and it's also the establishment of ethics. So the snake doesn't say, so you should go eat the tree now, and then dips out, right? He doesn't do that. He just says, he just says right, um, God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. Have a good day, right? Rolls out. He leaves the decision with her. This is how deception works. This is how you know he's conning her. He's deceiving her. He's letting her think that all the power, all the decision-making, all the information is coming up from within her, but he is actually pulling the strings. He is causing and bringing about her deception. The story continues. When the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took, the tr- she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve cross a boundary. And in doing that, they actually forfeit their vocation. Remember, one of their tasks was to protect the garden. Protect the garden from creatures that meant to do harm or evil. To protect the garden with truth. Both of them abdicated that responsibility. And so, cross a boundary. Now this is something really important. Notice who's there the whole stinking time. Adam. He was with her, is what the text says. What's interesting is in all the serpent's response, he doesn't say you, singular, he says y'all, plural. Scholar Carmen Joy Iam says this, the reason here, the reason why you here should be translated y'all is because it's plural. It's important to notice that each time the serpent speaks, he does so in the plural. Although he carried a dialogue with the woman, we see that the man is there with her in verse six. I feel like a lot of conversations about this put all the precipice of blame on Eve, right? And I just have a sense that there's been women in our church right now who've been really harmed by bad teaching around that. that. That women are somehow the source of evil or when women lead or something of that nature, that this is what happens. Those are lies. Adam is there the entire time. He's hearing it the entire time and says nothing. Doesn't say a word. I feel like the image that's created is like she got the fruit, put it in a pie, and was like, you want some pie, honey? And he's like, sure, right? And then it's like, oh, no, what did you do? Deceived, right? Not at all. He's watching all of this unfold and does absolutely nothing. Does nothing to protect the garden. Does nothing to protect Eve. Does nothing to say anything about anything. He abdicates all of his responsibility. He is just as much to blame. That's why later in the narrative, he's spoken to first about it. But, I digress, their eyes are opened, but the serpent isn't clear about what their eyes will be opened to. They see now that they're naked, and they feel shame. There's an interesting wordplay happening here. Do you remember the, 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 the word for uh, crafty? It's arum. You know the word for naked? Arom. There's a wordplay happening here. The serpent's arumness brings about their arom brings about their nakedness. And so we see here that this ability within the snake is what brings about the ultimate loss 
for Adam and Eve. Now, I love what Ignatius of Loyola, Ignatius of Loyola has to say. He says, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. We fall into the trap of deception when we believe the lie God's holding out on me. And that what he says about the good life isn't actually true. That God's actually robbing me of something. And God looks at this situation with the heart of a grieving father, seeing what his children have done. Jesus, in John 8, says this. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Set you free. When Jesus looks out on the world, he sees people in bondage to the lie. The lie is old as creation, that he's withholding that he doesn't long to bless or to give them all that their heart desires, that, that all that we long for can actually be found in him, that it's found in other things, career, sexuality, money. You fill in the blank. And Jesus' invitation is an invitation to freedom and to truth. It's hard to discern what's right from what's wrong because there's the one who lies there's our own brokenness, and then we live in a world of brokenness. So it's really difficult to know Tobin Raw. And this is why we trust the words of what Jesus says and we obey them. Because it's our inability to perceive good and bad that leads us towards bad. But if we trust God's perspective of it, it leads us into life. Read the Proverbs. Read the Psalms. Your word is a light unto my feet, right? A lamp unto my path. God's word is what gives us direction. God's truth, his revelation about himself, who we are, how the world works, is how we learn Tovin Ra. It's how we learn wisdom. I'm going to close with this quote. David Benner says this. It's not so much that we tell lies. It's that we live them. I have a feeling that today there are people in the room who've been living in lies. Lies spoken to you, lies spoken over you, lies spoken to yourself by yourself. And these lies are leading your life in a particular direction. And God's word comes to you today as an invitation to trust him, as an invitation to see his truth, obey his truth, and experience freedom. Would you join me in standing? What we want to do as a community now is we want to enter into a time of response where we respond to God's word with our bodies. And I feel like there's some of you here who have been living under the bondage of lies. And right now the Spirit's speaking to you about what those lies are. He's bringing them to the forefront of your mind. And what I love about the Spirit is what the Scriptures say about the Spirit, Spirit is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. And God's Spirit wants to liberate you from the bondage of lies this morning. And so that's that's one invitation. If you feel like you've been living under the bondage of lies, God wants to set you free. A quick caveat about response. You might be worried about responding to that word because of what everybody else thinks. Nobody else is thinking about you. Everybody else is thinking about themselves. So don't worry about anybody else. Respond to the spirit of the living God who is speaking to you by way of his word. I also just have a sense that there's, there's a need for repentance right now that the Spirit's bringing conviction about your own deception, your own dishonesty to others or to yourself, to your employer. And God wants you to live with honesty and integrity and in truth.
And I just have a sense that there's somebody maybe this morning who's, who's exhausted from their lies. Exhausted trying to keep up with who told what and how they said this. They, they are living in the fruit of their own destruction. And in God's kindness, he doesn't want to bring condemnation. He doesn't want to bring shame. He wants to bring freedom. And that today the invitation for you is to come and to tell the truth. To come and to confess your sin. I feel pressed to let you know the gentleman who I opened the story with today is still married to his bride. His marriage is on the mend and is healing. And, and God is doing a miraculous work of restoration. But here's what it took. It took him telling the truth. And that's what you might need to do right now is come forth and tell the truth about yourself, about what you've been saying, about what's going on. We want to create space for that. We want to invite you to respond as well too. And my other hunch is that God's just doing something in the room and you might not even be able to put your finger on it. You might not even be able to name it right now, but God is stirring something in your heart, um, in you, and, and you need to respond. You need to respond to what the Spirit's speaking. So here's what we're going to do. The worship team's going to play, and as they do, I want to invite you all to fill the room with worship and praise, declaring truth over our community. And I want to invite the rest of you to respond by coming forward, embodied, opening up your hands as a sign and a symbol to God, saying, I hear you. And I respond. And as you do, brothers and sisters will come alongside you and pray for you. Let us respond now.